0: Welcome to another episode of Big Risk Energy. On this podcast, we talk to an amazing range of people. And we talk to these people about risk. Risk they've taken in their lives, risk they've taken in their careers, when they paid off and when they didn't. On today's episode, I'm blessed to be joined by the one and only Dr. Steve Scruton. Steve is the ex-head of research at Global Investment Bank. He's an ex-professor of practice at an international business school and also a double black belt in karate and hapkido. Steve, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, really. So we had a really, really interesting conversation probably about five, six months ago, just as the world was falling off a cliff. Um, It's been a really interesting six, seven months. And I left that conversation mind blown because we've known each other for pretty a year and a bit now, maybe a year and a half now. We've spoken a lot about investments in the startup world, but I didn't appreciate obviously yourself as an economist, how much amazing insight you were able to share with me about what's going on in the world at the moment. And this podcast is all about risk. And some of the things you were telling me in terms of where the real risks are for potentially countries going into hyperinflation, where the real risks are for us, you know, not being able to navigate what's going on over this year and and, and the years to come. And I I thought it was really really interesting and something I'd love to share with the audience. So as an economist, what is your view on what's going on right now? And and what can the country do? What can the world do to try and control this situation from spiraling any further? Mm.
1: So obviously it's hard to predict some of the real world effects, um, wars and that kind of thing. We're in an unusual situation in not just having a crisis, but a double crisis back to back. So every crisis is different, but there are some things that you can predict. For example, even if you don't know the future, you do know the past. So you can say, for example, that year-on-year inflation is driven part by what will happen in the future and part by what's happened up to a year in the past that drops out of year-on-year comparisons. So when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, there was quickly a spike in oil prices and we know what that spike looked like and we know when it will drop out of year-on-year comparisons in the spring. Then gas prices increased somewhat later. And so we know that the year-on-year comparison for gas prices will take a little longer to drop out of comparisons, but it will drop out. So unless we have a a brand new further spike in oil and gas prices, the comparisons will become better uh, year-on-year once
0: we get to the anniversary of when the past spikes happened and that makes total sense to me but is there not a worry that because of where we are with um either the you know risk to the supply chain or just the fact that these resources are finite that we could be in a situation where maybe not to the same extent but this year on year um compared to traditionally what would be quite catastrophic quite large increases is going to continue and be just the flavor of the future. So of course, new events can happen. So we weren't
1: expecting what would happen in February. We were just getting over the pandemic and something more came along. So new things can happen and they are by their nature hard to predict, but um, they could go either way. So, you know, things can get worse or they can get better. And we don't necessarily know which way it will be But we do know how things have been in the past and can therefore make some forecasts, uh, taking those into account. We also know, for example, that um, markets, oil market, gas market, they are by their nature predictive. They're partly based on the current situation, but also based on traders' expectations of what will happen in the future. So some things are predictable, for instance, it is going to be winter for the next few months, and then it is going to be spring and summer. And some things are harder to, to discern. But they will be building into their purchases and sales of future contracts, their average expectation of what will happen.
0: And do you think the fact that we are running out of these resources, do you think that will just have a Annual impact in terms of that inflation just being part of our reality. So
1: these are longer-term pressures. We're not going to run out of um, oil, gas, coal, and all your things that we need to stop using before the climate crashes. So we have more natural resources than we can ever afford to use, particularly coal. Particularly coal. If we, I I used to have a climate research team uh, sit on the same desk as me at uh, at the investment bank, and. um, when I asked, you know, what will the coal run out? They said, no, we'd be dead long before we'd run out of coal. So, you know, essentially we have to leave these natural resources in the ground. Yes. We will not run out of natural resources. So, what we're experiencing at the moment is a shock to the current supply, not a situation where the amount of oil, gas, and coal in the ground has been affected in any way. They've been there for millions of years and there's nothing going to change the fact that they're there it may change whether they're accessible
0: this year, yes. but there is too much of all these resources for our own good. Interesting, okay, that's in a very strange way filled me with a lot of optimism, because part of the thing that I've been worried about is, well, if the um, at least the sentiment that we're running out of these things is what's driving the price up, how do we get out of this? But if that's not the case, that is some good news that we can all take from this. In a funny
1: way, um, this will, increase how long the natural resources last because a high oil and gas price incentivizes us to innovate and to move towards renewable energy, which will reduce our consumption. So high prices for natural resources encourage us to use less of those resources.
0: So what do you believe is the biggest risk to this global recession taking longer? Or, or you know what is the biggest risk to this being more painful than it, than it, than it might be? So people are worried
1: mainly at the moment about inflation. And we've seen inflation before many times. It's not something new. We've not been used to it since the 1980s. But the 1970s, late 70s and early 80s were a period of very high inflation, well over the current levels. Um, and what happened then was that there was um, a, a, a supply shock, no. Um, in oil in particular, much less gas at that time. Uh, In fact, multiple supply shocks in the 70s. And uh, inflation increased. What kept it going was not that the oil price increased even further, although it did in 79, so there were multiple oil oil shocks. But in the end, the oil price came down. What kept it going was wages. So you start with a shock in one part of the, the economy, Natural resources, for example, tend to have volatile prices. It could be oil, gas, food, uh, anything that we consume on the world market. And then people naturally want to preserve their quality of life. So they demand a pay rise equal to the inflation or more. And um, that then means that since their wages are uh, the main cost in most other industries, that those are passed through into the prices of things that were not in short supply, like a haircut or a, a restaurant meal. Um, so if wages increase, it's called a wage-price spiral, and we've had them before, and if, so if wages increase as a result of the, or as a reaction to the original supply shock, then it will become much broader. And they can increase indefinitely. Yeah. So it's not driven by an external, directly by an external event anymore. It's become internalized. And um, the way that that was conquered in the 80s, um, particularly by the Fed Chair Volcker, um, was to put up interest rates to the level that made the economy crash. So he deliberately crashed the economy to reduce demand. The only way to tame inflation when it's gone from something temporary and specific like oil and gas into general wage price spiral is to reduce demand. Wow. So if everybody if inflation is 10% and everybody got 10% plus pay rises, then the Bank of England and other central banks around the world would have to step in and make interest rates so high that it comes down to 2%. Yeah. So they would have to deliberately crash the economy somehow Wow. to, make, to reduce demand through the very painful way of, of making mortgages more expensive and loans more expensive and businesses go out of business and unemployment will reduce demand all the worst ways but necessary if you want to actually stop the inflation from spiraling upwards wow so in a sense we would rather we would be better off if we all took five percent pay now by having a 10 percent inflation and five percent pay rise and everybody gets minus five than everybody getting 10 or 15 and the bank of england having to step in and cause a massive recession to stop that
0: wow i mean that's Fascinating, I mean, so insightful. Where do you think we are right now in that cycle? And do you think with the Bank of England already stepping in to increase interest rates to a certain degree, we're already on the way to this?
1: So my hope is that we are kind of toughing it through, that wage growth at the moment in the U.K., for example, just over five percent, inflation at 10. So people are having a real cost of living problem. And it's pain shared across virtually the entire economy. Everybody's feeling it. And as I say that's painful. And I understand, you know, everybody has difficult circumstances and bills to pay. But the alternative is worse. So as long as we maintain an average that doesn't lead, of pay rises that doesn't lead into a wages price spiral and inflation drops below that 5%. You know, If we continue with wage rises at 5 and inflation drops to 2 over time, so as long as we kind of share the pain, mm. then we can get out of it without the Bank of England having to slam the brakes on. Mm. Um, so really it's a, a kind of political um, question whether they can go through the, uh, the current situation without giving in to every demand for a 10% rise because it, you know we can understand if inflation is 10 and you're getting 5 you're feeling worse off sure. and you know the government's temptation will always be to please the electorate and to to deal with strikes by giving pay rises and things like that and i'm afraid my view is that if they were to give everybody 10% the bank of england would have to crash the economy yeah
0: yeah which is terrifying so how pivotal is the outcome of the current strike action that we're seeing to the way that everyone else responds? Yeah, so
1: the strike action is feels severe because there's quite a lot of groups involved, but they are largely those where the public sector would provide the money. So it's not in private industry. And I think part of the reason for that is that in a competitive market where there are multiple providers, if one company, Gives a bigger pay rise than other peers, they will lose business, and the employees will, you know, perhaps risk their jobs if their company goes under or has to make cuts to compensate. Whereas in the public sector or in areas that are related to the public, like trains, etc., um, there is a concept that oh, well, the state can come and just give another 5% mm. and and in a sense they kind of could because it wouldn't be the whole economy and you wouldn't get 10% average wages unless those demands that were met throughout the public sector led to similar demands across the private sector yeah. and then you'd be in the wage price spiral and the Bank of England stepping in with 15% interest rates. So I remember 14% interest rates, now I can't quite remember 15% but 14% we got at one point when, and it when was, was unsustainable. It's when the pound dropped out of the exchange rate mechanism. Oh, right, and, and late to our divorce that? from Europe. Was that? Later than that, I can't remember the exact year. Early 18, but right. um, the, you know, we tried to defend the, the peg between the pound and the Deutsche Mark, essentially, before the euro. Mm-hmm. And um, and eventually, we weren't willing to take that much pain in the mortgage markets mm-hmm. and loan markets, etc. having interest rates that high. But the Bank of England was not independent at that time. Mm-hmm. Now the Bank of England is independent, it's a very clear target. If they stuck to their guns and did whatever it took to get inflation to their target, it would be incredibly painful. Mm. So I think, in a sense, we'd all be better off everybody taking 5% now and hoping to make up for it in future years. I'll let
0: the team know. Then,
1: <laughs> then, um, then everybody getting 10 which would result in higher inflation, so we wouldn't actually be better off and then the Bank of England having to step in and, uh, and make it. Which can be brutal. Yeah, but essentially to get the economy to slow, they would need interest rates above inflation. And we hope that is by inflation coming down rather than the interest rates going
0: up. Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. So one question I have, and this is something I've been thinking about for a very long time, is maybe traditionally governments were much more in control than they are now, um, the way that I think corporates have become supranational in the way that they have, in many ways, the ability to forego laws and controls of specific countries by operating in, in different countries, operating multinationally. They, we know they have a lot of vested interests in lots of these places as well. How much do you think um, the, the way that corporates act and the way that they are going to be influencing, um, for example, how much tax they pay, how much have they decided to pay people How much can the government do to control corporations which are seemingly beyond their touch? And what's the impact of that on our economies? So I guess um, if a government wants to attract
1: a footloose multinational, they need to create a good environment. And I'm a huge believer in education, uh, skills, entrepreneurship obviously is something we, we very much share. So if a government can create a generally attractive environment, then the multinationals will choose to be here Um, and if not then you're quite right many of them can go elsewhere some cannot because they need people here to deliver the service to our public Uh but if the role is itself something that could be carried out anywhere which an increasing number can with our remote working of today um, then they will choose the best place and that doesn't mean the cheapest place. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean that you have to move all the jobs to the lowest cost location because there are differences in productivity. So if our wages are twice another country, but we deliver twice as much per person, then that's fine, the job can be here. But if we, have, if we want wages three times another country, we better deliver three times as much as somebody in that other country to keep the job. What we can't expect is that we want three times the wage for two times the work
0: and for the company still to choose to be here. Yeah, that makes total sense. And in terms of being able to tax corporates efficiently, because from my perspective, and uh, as clearly not an economist, my perspective, when I see that there is such a cost of living crisis and we do have a severe um, lack of ability to fund public services in the way that we wish we could, if you look at the papers at the moment, NHS waiting times are horrendous. How much does our inability to efficiently and effectively tax corporates, multinational corporates, impact us in this cost of living crisis? And is there anything that can be done? Well, the first thing to bear in mind is that the tax you're thinking of,
1: which is the tax on profits, is only one of the taxes that people pay. In fact, it's not the main source of revenue for the government. So the biggest sources of taxes are VAT, which is on products and services, which are sold in this country. And there's not much where you can get round that. You know, companies, multinationals, perhaps could ship in the product from abroad rather than sell it here. But labour services, personal services, etc., are very difficult to shift. So, the, so VAT is an efficient tax from that point of view, and should probably encompass more things like food and um, and clothing that that's often exempt. It should be a broad mm-hmm. tax instead of others, not on top, because mm-hmm. we obviously don't want to be worse off but we should collect whatever tax we collect efficiently and VAT is one that's more efficient than corporation tax um, in that regard harder to avoid um, so you'd probably be well advised to take quite a bit from that. Labour taxes also, they, you can move the job offshore but in, otherwise it's hard to avoid so the multinationals pay a lot of VAT they pay a lot of taxes on labour they also pay taxes on property um, so property is something also that you can't readily move yep. and our property taxes are actually quite low mm-hmm. um, People obviously feel that they're high because all taxes feel high But local government here is particularly badly funded It goes perhaps a quarter of its revenue from from the locality and three-quarters from central government mm-hmm. because property taxes are not um, as high as in other countries where in the US or Germany or something where the local governments are stronger. The states and the lender are stronger than our county councils, Mm -hmm. etc. So local taxes here are low relative to other places. Uh, We compensate with higher taxes on on labour and and VAT. So you could move more towards property that's harder to avoid. Um, As for the corporation tax, you know, it is only one element of the taxes, not a particularly big one, but we still do collect it and the effort the main effort there has been on an international stage so the OECD is trying to organize um, lead a global tax initiative having a 15% minimum global tax so that you the idea would be you cannot find anywhere with zero yeah um, which makes sense yeah i think there's 137 countries have signed up so it's right. well beyond the OECD although many of those countries are Campaigning for the coordination to move from the OECD to the UN mm-hmm. to move to move the leadership of that initiative from the rich countries to all countries mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because they feel that um, I think the OECD members have something like 75% of the committee positions on that decision, right. and so they still there's a feeling that they may be inter- acting in big countries. Big rich countries' interests I could than see why well. they would feel, but that you know, way. the UN is a yeah. is a a, a very um, good venue for global cooperation, as yeah. we've seen in climate change, etc. Yeah. So why not a global minimum corporation tax with ideally no exemptions, no zero tax countries? Um, you could still avoid tax through criminality, and so there's lots of effort being made to try to look through shell companies and things like that. Um, you know, criminals don't like to pay tax, so, you know, if we can reduce crime, we reduce crime and increase tax at yep. the same time. So that's another one, I'm not suggesting that multinationals commit crime, they do things that are legal oh, but I would legal, suggest but they tax... probably do. Well... It's <laughs> a separate issue, so their, their use of tax havens, if legal, is not necessarily what we want. Sure. So a global minimum tax will, will discourage them, yeah. at least make it less
0: beneficial, by Yeah. Posing fifteen percent rather than zero elsewhere. Yeah, but surely, I mean, that's never going to happen, right? Because you're going to get these um, spoiler nations who would much rather just not have that and get the and, and bring in you know all the benefits. of yeah, having Yes, so they're often very small countries. Yeah.
1: So they're if, they're, if the if industry um, relies on zero tax, they'll yeah. then get the benefit of lots of high-paid legal jobs mm-hmm. and that kind mm-hmm. of thing in their country. So, essentially, they're making money from helping the multinationals to avoid paying tax yeah. elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we, we are trying to have at least
0: a flaw to the global taxes. That chances. makes sense. That makes sense. I want to posit a future situation, which is something I've been thinking about for a while. and would love to get your opinion on this. Let's say we do hit a situation where the Bank of England is forced to create a um, you know, collapse, in a way. Um, lots of pain, lots of people who are are left without. Now, I can really see a situation where corporates then come in to fill that space and provide a layer of support which governments wouldn't be able to at that stage. What I mean by that, for example, is um, I can see a situation where TikTok, your content provider, whoever it might be, becomes your source of monetization. You can monetize your own data. That's instead of you know, the lack of universal basic income provided by a government, by monetizing your time, monetizing your engagement with a, a content provider. And I think it's interesting because I already see in the US how some corporates are stepping in where people feel like their governments have betrayed them. For example, when Roe v. Wade was overturned, Amazon stepped in to say, well, we will pay for your transport to get an abortion elsewhere. And I think we could end up in a situation where if corporates and conglomerates, put however you want to call them, are, have better um, funding to provide safety, to provide um, income, to provide opportunities to individuals, teenagers will become more tied and more aligned to TikTok than they will be to their national governments. Do you see this? Is this me being a total lunatic raving from, from the rooftops right now? But I mean, I, I can see it happening. So when a company um,
1: acts in the interests of its employees, then you have to think that there are two sides to that. One is that the company could have a, a genuine, its management at least, and, and its shareholders could have a genuine agenda to to help. Mm-hmm. And you know, I expect that is the case. These um, shareholders and boards and leadership are people and people have feelings and you know they they can be generally philanthropic purely because that's the right thing to do. Sure. But they're also their employees. And so they're not if they're not doing it for the general public but for their employees, then providing a high quality work experience may help them to retain talent and and, and attract workers. So they can achieve both goals and it doesn't have to be exclusively one or the other. They can do the right thing for people in society whilst doing the right thing for themselves. That's a very nice situation to to be in. Whether they would do the same for the general public Mm. um, is harder, um, partly because there wouldn't be the self-interest side to it. There would be the public interest but not the self-interest side to it. Um, So there would be Still motivation, but less. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other is the sheer scale. So even though Amazon has have many, more than a million workers, that's a tiny fraction of the total population. So helping the whole population is a task that may be too big mm-hmm. for companies. It's, t- it's in a sense too big even for governments. Mm-hmm. So when the governments are stepping in to try to control gas prices, for example, you know, it may be ruinous even at a government level for an individual company, it could be too far, yeah, so what they can do is um, enabling technologies so if they wanted to help people who are unemployed or underemployed or simply wanted to work more to find new opportunities to generate income by making remote work mm-hmm. easier or mm-hmm. increasing the, the total technological and social space in which um, people can express their creativity and earn money from it, Mm. then they're not the ones who are directly paying you for the new work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. The new work you're doing is creating a product or service for third parties who will pay. Therefore, the cost of enabling that is a fraction of the benefit to you. Most of it comes from this product or service you're delivering for others. And they may even make a profit out of it, but even if they don't, they won't have to bear the entire burden. Mm. They will just be enabling, facilitating, making it possible. And even perhaps time limited, you know, just get you going. Mm. Whereas unlimited financial support for a
0: high portion of the population is beyond even the largest corporates. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, I think it's, uh, it becomes a very interesting one when I think it's all going to depend on the unit economics around consumer data. You know, if a, if a business finds that actually getting you engaging with content, understanding your behaviors of consumption over a long enough period of time is more worth it to them than providing you some sort of income. And I've been seeing a few of these that are called attention exchanges. And essentially, really interesting businesses where um, they're content providers, but you'll integrate your open banking system. So they can understand exactly, you know, who you are as a consumer, your levels of affordability, and then they reward you for engaging with content. And I really do think that's the future. I think it's really fascinating companies uh, going to do this. But um, I I think there's going to be a lot of desperate people over the next couple of years, unfortunately, due to the economic environment. And I do think that um, lots of of corporates will step in to, to fill the space, which I don't think the government's going to be capable of doing. Probably not in a blanket way, um, but, but certainly with, with, with specific pockets. So Steve, this has been incredibly informative. I want to ask you a bit more about yourself. And there's a few questions that I ask all my guests, because, I'm, because this was amazing to talk about risks to the economy and society, and, and genuinely one of my favourite conversations I've had so far on this podcast, because I love to learn. Um, but let me ask you a bit about you, Steve, what is the biggest risk you've ever taken, and what was the outcome?
1: So guess in a business life, um, I was in the city for, for many years, and this isn't my first crisis. Um, I mean, we just had two, but if we roll it back a few, um, I was in the city, everything was great, and I was the head of a research team, there were 25 in our team, and a bubble burst. Yeah, so a crisis stock markets halved, my sector crashed, uh, management laid off 20 of my team, so just five was left. And that was a very difficult situation. And, you know, a lot of other teams were affected as well, and, you know, people were shell-shocked, and you're thinking, well, I have a job by Christmas. Mm. This was in the summer, so we had a bit longer to go than than today. But, you know, you really didn't know what was going to happen. Mm. And, um... So we could have just kept our heads down, done things as before, or some people were just sitting there looking at their screens, unable to, to clearly think, um, just waiting for the redundancy check to come. Oh, yeah. Um, but we didn't. We decided to challenge the business model of our industry. So we worked like many city analysts. You analyze eight companies to death. And you write research reports, build financial models, write research reports, publish them, Salesforce will market them to hundreds of fund managers. So you knew your companies in incredible detail, competing with other analysts at other banks. And the Salesforce knew the clients, but you knew them hardly at all. So you're a product expert. And, And we thought, well, we're spending all our time trying to understand these eight companies and the industry that they're in. But our industry is actually financial services what do we know about it should is it being done right should we look at the business that we're in rather than these companies whose shares we're analyzing and we came to the conclusion that we we were not doing the right thing and that actually the client wasn't the company the company was that we were analyzing was the product and the client is the fund manager who has to invest people's pensions or whatever so we decided, the five of us who were still in a job, that we would take the top 200 clients and account manage 40 each. It's a big uh, task. Uh, yeah, but easier than 200. Yep. And that instead of working as individuals, each analyzing eight companies and writing a research, research report about this company, then that company, and taking turns, we would write about the whole industry together one piece 40 companies, the whole global industry. And we would base it therefore on themes that affected the whole industry. So interesting topics cutting across rather than everything to do with one company, one theme across all companies, shared product. And, but the main thing was that enabled each team member to talk about the whole industry to a few clients. So instead of eight companies, 200 clients, it was 40 companies, 40 clients. Yep. And that meant we were calling our clients ourselves rather than through the sales force. And we were talking about five times as much, Mm -hmm. whole industry. And we were talking to one fifth as many people so we could call them five times as often. And it was eventually a lot more. So I used to call my clients maybe once a month or two. And now I was calling two or three times a week. Yeah. Um, So it was about a shift from a product mindset to a client service account management mindset and from working as five individuals to working as a team and that was really challenging the way things were done because city analysts are expected to be absolute expert on eight companies and that's it and that's what all our competitors did mm. digging depth analysis means taking things apart yeah. taking down to the lowest possible amount of detail and we went the opposite way and did broad as you can be amazing Amazing. And that, that was a leap of faith. Yeah, absolutely huge. Especially given what the times were where we didn't know we'd be working in a few months time.
0: Yeah, of course, of course. And that, how did it turn out? So it took a, little, a few months to get going and
1: clients were thinking, well, why is the analyst calling us? And oh, but they've got quite interesting things to say. And we had to rebuild all our financial models on a single template and then write these research reports and get a reputation for it. But we went from an ordinary, not top 10 team at an ordinary bank to, to be the number one in our industry amazing. in five years. And in the sixth year that we came, we were voted number one out of all sector teams in all sectors, over a thousand teams in the city and we came first. Amazing. So it showed, and it was the same people, same five people, well, four, one left, but same people, different
0: business model. Incredible. Okay, is there anything that you wish you'd done differently in your career? So the,
1: the curious thing there was, it was about the same thing. Um, so we were very successful, very well regarded, everyone promoted, everybody paid bonuses based on performance, all very fine. None of our colleagues in other research teams copied our business model I couldn't persuade them to... Stop doing everything they currently did and thought they should you know, have been doing forever and just completely changed their attitude to client service, the their, their model of, of looking after the customer and, and working together as a team and share products and all that kind of thing. I just couldn't persuade any other team. There were 20 teams. We generated as much revenue as the 19 others combined wow. and they still wouldn't change. Nor would our competitors, that was great. Our competitors at other banks would not change either, where we stayed number one because they didn't copy our business model, even though you could see what it is.
0: It's insane, I mean, what's the rationale for not doing that? Is it just inertia or not invented here and ego? <laughs> so we're talking about a time, we
1: made our change during the depths of a crisis, and they say never waste a crisis, and there's a crisis at the yep. moment. So we made our, our leap of faith at a point where we didn't know whether we'd be employed If we didn't do anything Mm. whereas economic conditions go in cycles and they recovered so when we got number one we were in a boom time yeah and people were making good business in with mediocre strategies yeah so the incentive to change was greatest perhaps when the situation was worst and when the situation was best and everyone was fairly comfortable should i take a
0: Leap of faith yeah, now. No change. No change necessary. Um, yeah. But also
1: it meant a lot of, it would mean a lot of change in the way that people had worked. And many of people have been in the same job for 10 or 20 years, mm-hmm. analyzing these companies in incredible detail. And I said, you know, our job is not analyst anymore, we're synthesists. And our job is not research. That's what we do. Our job is infotainment. Mm-hmm. We're there to provide a service to our clients, mm-hmm. not to do the research that's the means to an end. And lots of people wouldn't make that change. Yeah. They, they couldn't get their heads out of the spreadsheets and out of the detail and think, what industry are we in? What are we here for? Who are our clients and what do they want? You know, and to really look and challenge the whole way that the the city works was yeah. a pretty big thing yeah, to absolutely. do. And, and and you know, your job title said analyst. So you analysed. And so we didn't manage to persuade any of the teams to make that change. And that, that would have been, you know, potentially brilliant for the bank if they had
0: top-ranked team in every industry. Yeah. It would have been fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So you've been incredibly successful in the city, as lethal in martial arts as you are on the <laughs> spreadsheet. What does it take to be successful? Oh. Um, well, as... We're both
1: entrepreneurs, you have run your own business, I just advise them, but you're probably better positioned to answer answer that question yourself. But I would say that um, you need to do something different, that you don't have to, you can do something the same as other people and expect to achieve roughly the same results as other people, and that's absolutely fine, and that's what almost everybody does by definition. If you want to be exceptional, then you have to do something exceptional. You can't just do the same as everybody else and keep your fingers crossed. And a lot of the ventures that you and I work with, they have some amazing idea to change the technology. And it could be in, I have one of the ventures I advise who's doing something that will help with cancer, and it's fantastic, and somebody else who's helping to, to stop fires, and forest fires, that's wonderful, you know, and it's technology solutions, and that's great. Um, But we can't all necessarily invent a new technology. These great scientists, etc., fantastic geneticists and optical physicists and whatever, fantastic. Um, But what we did in the city and what many people can do is to look at the business model that competitors are using. And in our case, it was make a product and sell it. Mm -hmm. And that's the way most businesses in the world work. And yet... If you can change that for the better, obviously we change for the worse, that's a problem. But if you can find a better business model, you don't have to have a new technology. Yeah. So I think with many of the ventures that we advise, there are two people who co it: a CEO and a CTO. And we often focus on the CTO and the technology. And that is great if they have a new technology and it's wonderful, that's fantastic. But the CEO generally controls the business model and they can be just as important and innovative and many many successful companies did not invent a new technology but went on to succeed like netflix for mm. example you know they they challenged blockbuster because they used dvds in the post whereas previous cassettes couldn't really be posted they weren't rigged, rigged, yeah. uh, rugged enough but did they invent the dvd or the dvd player no did they invent post no they put a DVD in a jiffy bag and put it in the post. That was their innovation. And then they moved it from doing that on a pay-per-use model to a subscription model, another innovation. And then later they moved to, to streaming, which they also didn't invent. Yeah. So they were, Netflix's history is mostly about business model innovation. And so if you look at the model of the industry and say, can I move it up to the next level of client service?
0: Um, you may not need a new technology. It's an amazing answer probably one of the best answers we've had to that question All right, I've got two more for you one is what are you proudest of
1: mm, other than my kids <laughs> that can
0: be the answer it's this is this is open ended
1: no I've, I've I have one family life very very proud of my family um, that's a hard hard question to, to answer i, I i've I've generally not done a lot of things for other people. I've generally had a very regular career in which I've worked for myself and been for myself and my family and and, and a wider family around me. I've often paid for education of cousins and nephews and nieces, particularly my wife's from Kazakhstan, it's a large family mm-hmm. over there. We've brought them here to, to have education. So education is incredibly important for me. Um, but I, I did have an opportunity to give back in that way, so I, spent quite a few years as, using my skill as a resident finance expert at Oxford Foundry, the startup incubator that they had at Oxford University. So we helped dozens of startup companies and you know it was a pleasure and a privilege to go there and, and do my bit, use, use my specific competence to help something that was doing general good. So helping a university out.
0: Amazing. Okay. My last one for you. Fifteen-year-old Steve walks in the room right now. What are you gonna tell him?
1: Ah, uh, gosh, fifteen-year-old Steve wasn't great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was good at chess.
1: I was doing my karate at that time. Um, so I, I mean, I grew up in uh, in a town in Merseyside. I've not really got the same accent as. I, I was gonna say there. I wouldn't have got that. Uh, yeah, just outside Liverpool. Uh, my parents were from Yorkshire, so my accent's definitely not from down here. And uh, so I knew nothing about, you know, I went to Oxford and I've lived in London, and I've had an international career and things. So all these things came later, but at that point I knew nothing about any of this. So um, I've, everything I've done has worked out, but I could have short-circuited it and got there quicker. So. Um, I had a great career in the city. It's not the first place I, I went. I worked in industry for six years. And I'm not sure I would change that because I think many people in the city, they had a purely financial view and no real understanding of industry. So mm-hmm. I think six years in industry was an incredibly useful background. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was in the city, I was working with public equities, advising fund managers. And whilst many of those fund managers are running pensions and we want to help them to do well, to to help the value of pensions, etc. It was a really, you're dealing with public companies and even you're not really providing advice to the companies and the advice to the companies, I think more than to the fund managers who then advise the company. So it's okay, it has some feedback, but advice directly to the companies has more benefit to society than indirect via pension funds and things. So I could have gone into private equity rather than into public equity. Mm-hmm and the most exciting and innovative part of private equity is venture capital. So it's kind of where I've ended up but it took me 30 years (laughs) Um, and it's been great and I've really enjoyed it but now I'm in a really good place where um, because of what I've done in the past I have the freedom to do what I want and what I really want to do is education and help startup ventures and that's what I do. And if I could have got there rather quicker um, and then I could have achieved more for others rather than just myself. For myself it's all been great but now I can afford to and use my expertise to help these startup ventures and, uh, and to help in education, Oxford or wherever and um, if I could have got there a lot faster um, then that would have been even better and now I and advise my children to do the, the same decision. They have a better start than yeah. here than than I did in in Merseyside. Amazing, Steve. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Great, Steve. again Ray.